All right, welcome back to another episode of Hallway Discussions Podcast. And um, we've got Leo coming on today. Yes. Uh, have you introduced me at all before? <laughs> no. Or do you always tell people who I am then? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. introduce yourself. So uh, I am secretary pending of the Young Green Society. Pending? Pending, yes. <laughs> we've had to reorganise our command structure lately. Um, but as of now, I am the secretary. Okay, yeah, because I tried to get in contact with uh, your society beforehand with... Uh, Jamie. With Jamie, yeah. He was the president at the time. Yeah. He's had, yeah, he's he's had to stand down unfortunately. So we've got we're having like special elections to re- to fill the role of president. Um, I was vice president, but I also w- didn't really want to stand up to be president. President. So the current treasurer is becoming vice president. The current secretary is becoming president, <laughs> and I, the vice president, am becoming secretary. So wow. it's all very confusing. But we will have a functioning society before long. Cool. <laughs> so how long have you been involved with the society then? Young Green, so it's a kind of a cool story. We're, we're a bit like the Avengers in that Jamie was like Nick Fury last year. He went around and recruited us specifically, um, every one of us. So we've got um, myself, Anouk, Lydia and Izzy mm-hmm. uh, on the committee. And last year, Jamie literally went around and asked all of us, like, grilled us about our politics and do you want to be part of this team? Because um, most, if not all, of the Young Green Society committee last year was graduating, so there was literally no one to take over. So Jamie sort of took it by the reins, and mm-hmm. he's the only reason there's still a society. So we owe him a lot. Oh wow, mm. he's, he kept it together. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a <laughs> he's a great guy. Honestly, he's so nice. Um, he sent us a really lovely email telling him telling us about why he wanted to step down, and I do not blame him for that at all. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like I ought to get into it on the show because it was kind of no, confidential. Yeah, but. Um, no, the rest of us, you know, we're carrying on his legacy, I'd like to think. Yeah, no, that, that, that's good to hear. But <clears throat> so what motivated you to, to join the Young Green Society in the first place? What are, what kind of activities and stuff do you guys actually organise? Yeah, so last year, um, I'm in second year. Last year, I got involved in a fair bit of the politics stuff. Um, I'm your typical lefty. I went to some <laughs> the Labour stuff. I went to one of the Marxist Society events, which was interesting in its own way. Uh, I didn't go back afterwards, though. <laughs> That's unfair. They're actually quite nice. But moving on. Um, I think I there wasn't a Lib Dem Society, and there still isn't. One of my friends is a Liberal Democrat, um, a course mate. He's been, a couple of, he's been to a couple of the city council meetings in Norwich, and I've been meaning to go because they're quite interesting. And I've been trying to push him to make a Lib Dem Society because I feel like, you know, they're not particularly well represented, but it would be nice. No. No, I'm getting off topic here, aren't I? Sorry. No, 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 um, go for it, yeah. No, so what got me to the Ungroos, aside from Jamie's canvassing, um, if there was an election tomorrow, I suppose, putting it most simply, aside from tactical voting, I would vote Green because their policy goals broadly align with mine. Um, if you want to go way back, like, you know, proper interrogation, um, <laughs> I from getting into politics back in 2016, which was a very interesting time. Time of uh, Brexit. Time of Brexit, you had Trump... Um, I think, yeah, Corbyn was was around at that point as well. Mm-hmm. So it felt like, you know, the established status quo was kind of coming apart at the seams and sort of a new political order was on the way. Um, and that was the, well, I finally became mature enough and interested enough to become engaged with politics on sort of like a semi-regular level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was still only 15 at the time, but I remember thinking, you know, this is an interesting... T- part of history to be a part of. Yeah. And I figure I may as well say switched on. Um, what got me to politics specifically, my dad was very political. Uh, was he? He's very, he is, he's very, um, he was very pro-Corbyn and still is. Um, he's, you know, you could call him broadly the left of the party. He bought his Labour membership just so he could vote for Corbyn in um, wow. one of the ele- leadership elections, yeah. Um, Are you a member of the, the Labour Party as well? No, no. Or I the Greens? No, <laughs> I, I only bought my Green membership this summer. 
Um, I've never been a member of a political party before because I don't really agree with the idea because a party like Labour can go from Blair to Corbyn within, you know, in less than a decade. Mm -hmm. And those are two very radically different positions, but it's the same party. And I feel like being a member of a party means pledging unconditional support. And that's not the way I want to see it with my membership. If the Greens go off the deep end and go start talking about some really crazy stuff, I'm going to say, nah, nah. Um, but... I bought it because I, it's something I it's felt like a cause I could genuinely get behind. You know, with Corbyn, I liked him, but there was so much baggage, if you like. But with the Greens, they're, they're a good bunch of people. They're a good bunch of people. Mm. I mean, there was it the Green Party. They at the last election, I remember them saying they would invest maybe three hundred billion pounds into climate change related, um, kind of combating climate change and all that. Is is that something you would you would have voted green then in the last election? Oh yes, in the last election that was back in twenty nineteen. Um, my constituency at home, it's in Kent, is very pro Tory. Um, you know Tom Tickenhat, he ran for the um, Tory leadership. Okay, yes. Sir. Yeah, he, he's he's my MP back home. Oh, he's um, your MP. It's like about as the safe seat as you can get for Conservatives. So, again, aside from tactical voting though, I would have voted for Green if it you know election tomorrow and all that. And that's primarily due to the climate, the climate emergency, climate crisis. Or... Yeah, it's. A bit more nuance. I'm, I see environmentalism and social reform and economic reform as going hand in hand almost. I'm one, you know, I think with someone like Starmer, on the one hand, he has very radical policies, mm -hmm. like he wants to abolish the House of Lords, nationalise energy. But on the other hand, he's very anti-strikes at the moment. Um, and that's not something I can really agree with with him. Because I did see that on your society uh, Instagram page, you were supporting yeah, the strikes. Yeah, the yeah, officially we do support. I think most of the political societies do. I mean, the Conservatives are probably the exception to yeah, that. They don't. Uh, <laughs> no, but Mick Lynch, the um, head of the RMT union, I personally quite like. Um, and I think it's important while I'm here to make sure I mention when I'm talking about my own opinion versus the opinion of the society and by extension, the Greens as well. Um, but Mick Lynch, I really like. And... The closer you look at the strikes and the way these people have been treated for so long and the fact they put up with it for so long as well. And again, well, <laughs> I don't want to get too much into the strikes because it's not really the sort of thing you'd ask the Green Party, I suppose. It's not really their main... Your main domain. But I yeah, guess I mean, it, that, it's all related, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah, exactly. That's why I try to see it. But I know there are some people in the Green Party um, who would rather... Most of them would be interested in, in a far more progressive version of society, you know, in every level than what we are seeing on the Conservatives. Mm -hmm. But there's an extent where they don't want that to be our Achilles heel. And I can fully understand that because if you have a leader like Corbyn, people are going to attack him a lot for being too far left. And maybe that's true. Maybe Corbyn was the, wrong, the right leader at the wrong time or vice versa. But with the Greens, um, I feel there's, because they want to introduce such systemic change. Sorry there. <laughs> that's all good. Uh, um, there's greater room for the sort of social and economic reform that I would like to see to come in. So, like, universal basic income is something that I'm really interested in. I'm I'm a PPE student, so I I feel like, even though it's a very, you know, Tory boy degree, I feel there's a bit <laughs> of a negative stereotype. Um, it's allowed me to look at these things from different angles. Like, UBI would be something I'd like to see at least rolled out in a trial capacity. Especially as we go towards more automation in society and kind of like normal normal jobs are slowly going away. Yeah, again, that's another thing is that the current work week, I'm in massive, you know, we really had a massive disruption due to COVID, people working online, fewer hours from home. And so much, it, it's made, made me realise, even though I wasn't working like a nine to five job at the time, so much of what was coming out that 
the nine to five job, you know, working culture, it's so outdated and so pointless and futile and contributing to so much for our current mental health crisis. It's in desperate need of reform and we can do it because studies have shown that productivity remains the same even if you're working on a four day week with reduced hours because people just don't have the sort of attention span you need. So that's something that the Green Party is advocating for you. No, again, this is where it's important to say, um, maybe they will, maybe the next uh, general election with the manifesto, um, I'm, there, there are people in the Green Party who favour reforming the work week. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not going to go on record and say that is an absolute statement they wanted to make. <laughs> I see. Because yeah, I think, um, especially nowadays, I think, well, we've seen with how Corbyn, how he dramatically lost in 2019. Mm. I fear it was a big, big... Um, Response responsibly because it was just too too dramatic, too too radical, and that's that's the kind of vibe I get whenever mm. I think of the Green Party on like spending two hundred billion, three hundred billion yeah. on just climate change related stuff. Well, there's poverty, <laughs> there's there's all mm. sorts. Obviously, they come hand in hand, especially as climate change affects people from poor uh, um, background backgrounds even more so than richer backgrounds. But at the same time, it's kind of in the public perception view, mm. Green Party does have that kind of outsider, very yeah. radical kind of view. Yeah, I, com- I completely understand that. Um, and that is, to some extent, a fair criticism. You know, why are we spending money on these, you know, chlorophyll lovers when there are people starving in the streets? And that's that's a fair point. There's a couple of things I'd like to say to, with regards to that. Firstly, you quote number 300 million, is that right? Uh, it's around 200 yeah. million to 300 the million. The problem is... At a certain point, once you get past a certain number, the actual amount of money you're talking about doesn't matter because you have no frame of reference. Like, is 300 million a lot? You know, is it, is it enough? Like, how much percentage of GDP is that? Mm. It's like when the Conservatives say we're investing record numbers in mental health services, like, and they quote a high number, that means nothing because you just do not have a frame of reference. You don't know if that's enough. The specific number doesn't even really matter because you can quote as big a number as you like, but as long as it's not enough, then... You know, it's, it's rubbish, but it still sounds good enough to communicate what they're saying. So is it enough? So for 300 million for... The, 300 billion, sorry. 300 billion, oh, billion for... Um, and again, they're not talking about paying all that up front. It's, it's split across a number of years. But it's just, again... <laughs> uh, again, I'm an economic machinist. I should be able to answer this. 300 billion to save the, to save the environment. When, you know, a Green Party member would say, if we spend that much money on defence on the NHS, then this is just as if not more important. It deserves this level of funding. And again, it's not so... I don't want to say blank check because that reinforces a negative impression. But it's important enough and it really is important enough. We should be spending a lot of money on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's worth noting that this is the left-wing part of me speaking, but the money is there. It sounds it sounds like a scary amount of money and it, and it should do. But if you look at the government's policy during covid where they effectively borrowed as much money as they needed to get through it, and now they turn around and say there's no there's no money left. It's a little galling, I will admit. It's a bit. I mean, I mean, there we're in. Or is our debt has finally reached hundred percent of GDP? Yeah, that's a bit scary. Yeah, I mean, it's scary. But again, <sighs> debt is an interesting one because you've heard um, there. You know, there's been, there's been talk of the fiscal black hole. They've been talking about um, in the government. Forty billion. Forty billion. Something like that. And again, this is where the shifty part of economics comes in, you know, a lot of economists have kind of torn them apart for that because that number is based specifically on your expectations of shrinking the national debt. And while generally speaking, shrinking debt is good, austerity measures introducing and causing the record low levels of po- high levels of poverty and cost of living that we've seen 
is even worse. Mm-hmm. Um, do you mind if I go off on a wee tangent slightly? Go for it. No. Oh. So um, people may not remember this, but back in 2018, um, Philip Alston, who was the UN commissioner for um, human rights, I believe, did a survey of poverty and the conservative policy of austerity in the UK. And what he found, he compared it to conditions in a third world country. He said that, you know, there's a systemic problem with giving people the help they need. Universal credit is broken. It is not working. You know, you can't expect to continue to treat people like this. It is absurd. And the language he used was so, so harsh that the government effectively had to, like, disown him as a liar and someone they sent to spread, spread trouble. And it is worth noting he only stayed for about a week, which isn't, you know, <laughs> doesn't give him a lot of time. But these problems have been around, you know, since then, and they've been around for before then. And they're only getting worse. This was back in 2018, before COVID, before the war in Ukraine. And already, like, we're seeing record numbers of people just snowed under with the bills and, you know, the energy crisis. And if the Greens, you know, they stand a better chance of helping those people and at the same time introducing a more diverse energy infrastructure, focusing on green energy and, and, and infrastructure, then that's the sort of thing I can't help but get behind. Mm. Because you're helping people in the short term and the long term. And I think it's very easy to, for someone like me, who's from a middle class background, you know, I've had a very comfortable upbringing. It's very frustrating because it's easy to become invisible to the suffering of so many people. And that informs so much about politics. And with the Greens and with the Young Greens Party and the society, it kind of gives us the opportunity to spread the word less all the time, for people to look outside of what they're... Um, Again, this is a part where, oh, you get into the old, the selfish voters, they don't know what they're voting for, voting against their interests, that sort of thing. But as long as we can raise awareness and say to people, you know, who you vote for could significantly affect the lives of millions of other people who are not as fortunate as you, that's that, that will be a good thing. just want to bring it back to, just bring it back to climate change. Yeah, I'm aware. I, yeah, I've gone <laughs> no, but wildly it was off the point. point. I mean, yeah. because austerity... What is it? In in order, to, if we want to spend this, spend this three hundred billion mm. or something from the from the Green Party's manifesto, where are we going to get the money? Blah, mm. blah, that's always going to be a debate. But ultimately, climate change is happening. <laughs> We're mm. going to have to spend something. So the argument would be: we, Are we going to spend big now, save later? Mm. What is the kind of what is the kind of viewpoint that? What we should, what should we be doing? I think is the the question I'm trying to find. What should we be doing? What should now? we be doing right now? I mean, because the government's invested quite a bit into green, into green yeah. energy, and and the whole concept of energy independence yeah. is and something very yeah, and important. And they've got a net zero plan as well. This is good, but it's not good enough. What what is good enough? So <laughs> I think that's I think that's the come down to the no. question because we have extinction rebellion, we have animal mm. rebellion, over over London protesting, mm. causing havoc, causing trouble, same as the strikes. What is and they're trying to push on a, an agenda which maybe the whole public doesn't really agree with. I think that is that is that is the question. What should we be doing? Which is not too radical. I mean, we can try and get people on board. I think that's the important thing. People need to be on board. On board, getting people on board. That's the important thing, and it's why I sympathise with XR and AR. Even if we don't like, as a society, we've all agreed that their methods probably aren't the best idea. <laughs> um, so is that the official party position? Yeah, yeah. Again, Jamie was the one who propose it to us saying like, you know, we get where they're coming from. And obviously it's incredibly frustrating to me to sit there and do nothing while the world burns down around you. But um, we as a society, I don't agree with that. And if you guys are okay with that, but that's fine. But I don't think we associate the society with it. And we were like, cool. And we've kept that. Okay. But yeah, getting people on board. It's worth noting that you've had COP27 um, in Cairo, 
which has been a mixed bundle. I've, I've read quite a few conflicting news reports saying it's good or bad. There's actually been a couple of pieces in Concrete, uh, the Eurasian newspaper about it now, which are really good. I highly suggest you read it. You can read them online. Um, there's a couple of really good. I um, helped, you know, commission one of them. <laughs> so yeah. I, I should know. But it's it was... Um, but that's on the international stage. And obviously, there's a lot of other things going on right now, notably the war in Ukraine. So even though we should definitely exert pressure on the government to do something in those conferences and try and get stuff done, the UK government was quite quiet on a lot of the major issues and what I understand. Um, you know, a lot of focus should be on the national front, what we can actually achieve through our democratic decision making and participation in this country. So to get people on board, the problem with XRNA and all of that stuff is that you're immediately forming a negative connotation between green politics, you know, environmentalism and violent disruptive civil action. Civil action, civil um, disruption is a tried and true protest tactic. The AIDS protesters back in the 90s used it, and I don't think anyone would ever question whether or not they were on the right side of history. So they blocked a lot of traffic because if you block traffic, that gets reported to the traffic news, and they have to report the traffic news because there's so many commuters. So it works. It gets attention. It gets the word out there. And with the first past post political system, the electoral system, um, it's very difficult for the Greens to make any headway at all. Uh, for people who want to be aware of this, first past the post effectively marginalises anyone apart from Labour and the Conservatives because of how the electoral system works. I'm not going to go into too much detail here because <laughs> we know at the time and you don't want to tune in and hear me waffle about the <laughs> electoral system of the UK for 20 minutes straight. But it sucks and we need to replace it. But because it benefits Labour and the Tories, they're never going to get rid of it. So from the start, the Greens are fighting an uphill battle. So on the one hand, you've got the electoral system. On the other hand, you've got these groups which are making them look bad by association. And it's so you, the second option is, you know, community outreach, you know. So and that's what you're doing. I've started with my local um, Kent uh, young, uh, Green Society, not Young Greens. Um, and a lot of that is local campaigning, door-to-door, leaflet campaigning, planning, electioneering, that sort of thing. And a couple of the local councillors in my town are Green Party members, which was quite nice. Um, it was, again, like I said, Ken is normally quite conservative. So that was a big change that, that occurred within yeah, the Yeah, they're local councillors, so obviously they're not going to change the world. But it was still nice. You know, it was a, a small victory at a time like this. Um, and that does work a lot of the time. Um, you'd be surprised how many people want to become engaged and are sympathetic to people who aren't, you know, blocking traffic. So yeah. a lot of it is about delivering the message in the, in the right way. Um, and I think by now, the message, has, you know, a lot of the time, you know, climate deniers are out there, but they're mostly, in the UK at least, quite marginalised. The message has sunk in by now for the vast majority of the UK population that the climate is on the verge of being severely disrupted to the extent that it's no longer going to be able to support human life or, you know, not life, but flourishment. We won't be able to maintain this in the living we have for the past however many years. And that's because of high sea, um, rising sea levels? Yeah, because of the lot. <laughs> a lot. So, you know, global warming, CO2 emissions are the big, it's the big one. People talk about that one a lot. Um, it's the main thing that gets discussed. Carp, you know, you know, carbon producing, fossil fuels, that sort of thing. But you've also got just regular pollution, um, you know, culling of animal species, loss of biodiversity. All of that will feed into the sort of climate collapse because the ecosystem is all, all connected. So say, for example, you know, um, oh, I don't know, um, you know, the, the polar ice caps melt and, you know, the sea levels rise. But that's going to just generate, you know, more refugees sent to the UK, you know, to higher, higher lying countries mm. as well. Um, but in turn, that's going to lead greater demands on their energy infrastructure because more people are moving in. Mm. Especially more for food, you know, living essentials and government relief. 
And also, like, if they're going to turn them away, it's going to get really nasty and really violent. And that means you're arguing, instead of arguing for green politics, you're arguing against illegal immigrants and refugees who are only there because you're pumping loads of CO2 into the atmosphere. I see. It's pretty vicious. And a a big thing at the COP COP, um, conference was lower-lying countries like the Maldives, for example, they're the first that are going to get swallowed by rising sea levels, even though they have very little industry producing CO2. Yeah, and I I, th- I think I just want to bring that back to, because there's I, re- I remember reading in The Guardian, they changed their editorial kind of stance between the words um, climate change and climate emergency. Yeah, climate, I mean, that was, I think, one of the dictionaries words of the year um, back in, or one of the nominees back in 2019, 2018 or whenever. Um, and again, climate crisis, climate emergency, it's because the target, yeah, I think that sort of vocabulary is being adopted more and more because you had the target set back during the, um, was it Paris, um, to keep uh, CO2 levels at 1.5 degrees, um, you know, worldwide. Mm-hmm. And there's sea levels, temperature changes, <laughs> global temperature I'm sorry, I'm tripping in my words here quite a lot. Go for it. Uh, temperature changes at 1.5 degrees worldwide. Um, I think the Secretary General himself has come out and said that is probably no longer a viable target. And, but, and if we can't stick to that one big commitment, it's like going to be, it feels like everything else is going to fall apart, all the side deals, because that was the one big target we could all agree on together as a, you know, as, as a global community and say, that's a target we're going to try and reach by this date. And we're probably not going to do it. <laughs> so it's very, it's very frustrating. Oh, no, I bet. I mean, yeah, we, we can all agree no, that it's... I mean, I, I, yeah, if you want me to use a creative analogy here, being a Greens uh, member is a bit like being an Everton fan. Because it's just <laughs> yeah. constant disappointment and failure. And you know you're never going to get anywhere, but you've got to stay in the fight. You've got to. Cool, yep. So here I've got one of the items I brought in for Dramatic Effect. This is a book called The Uninhabitable Earth. Okay. I'm um, reading lately uh, by David Wallace-Wells, who's an editor at the New York Magazine, who's been writing about climate change for quite a long time. Um, this is a really good book if you want to learn about the worst-case scenario if we don't do anything. Uh, the first line of the book is, and I quote here, it is worse, much worse than you think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's, um, I haven't got all the way through it yet, otherwise I'd quote for it more specifically. But that's the long short of it, basically. He's put that into better words than I could. Because as I, even though I've said that people are aware of it, they know the climate is dying and they know we have to do something, they aren't aware or they don't want to educate themselves. I can't blame them because it's not a very pleasant topic. Yeah. You know, the danger we face. Because... Partly it's because the rhetoric has been quite maximalist in the sense that there's been so much doomsaying, so much like, if we don't fix this now, nothing will happen. Yeah, because we've been saying that for years. Yeah, and the world keeps on spinning. But as I said, it's so easy to blot it out when you live in the first world, if you pardon the term. Because, you know, you have the floods in Pakistan, for example, you know, and that was a new story for what, a few days? Then the new cycle continues and we're talking about something else. And it's, yeah, because we live in the first world, it's much easier for us to ignore these catastrophes worldwide. You had the wildfires in Australia and America a few years ago as well. And I think we're going to see these sort of things speeding up more regularity. Because we in the UK, we live in a temperate zone. Um, we don't experience any major weather shifts or weather patterns that can be significantly influenced by climate change. It's just a lot of um, rain. And- yeah, lots of rain. I'm not a meteorologist, <laughs> but um, it means that we, what I can say is that it doesn't mean we will face the same sort of challenges a lot of the world will right now. Um, we are quite fortunate in that regard. But it's going to happen. And I think it's we've gotten to the point where climate change and its effects have been vindicated so much by the scientific community that to ignore it is like shooting yourself in the foot, mm. then dowsing yourself in petrol and lighting a match. Because, 
it's it, it's it's insane. Like I said, it's it's like arguing to a brick wall sometimes. You know, with the World Cup, FIFA came out and tried to claim that the tournament's going to be carbon neutral despite holding it in Qatar, and they got torn to shreds because obviously that's not true. <laughs> um, and that yeah, and then the next COP crisis, the next COP, why do I keep calling it crisis? <laughs> the next COP um, twenty eight, that's going to be next year. Uh, do you know where it's taking place? I could not tell you. The UAE. In the UAE? Yeah, one of the major petro states of the Middle yeah. East, which does not set a good tone. And again, part of the reason why I'm a social reformer as much as I am an environmentalist is because the current prevailing ideology in America and the UK is that if it becomes profitable to save the climate, we will save the climate. Therefore, we must save the, make saving the climate profitable. But why isn't that then? Why isn't that a a, a a viable kind of option? Because that's the only way. Well, from a very pessimistic approach, you could say the whole world is just guided by money, right? It's we're in, a, we're in capitalism. So if you make it profitable, yeah. Again, people want to go you, do you, it. Yeah, you got the idea of green capitalism, and to give it credit, on a very limited level, it does work because if you you know if you convince people that investing in things like you know wind and you know wind tidal power solar power. Um, is going to be more lucrative than it is investing in oil and natural gas. So, like, for example, in the Middle East, you've got so much desert, which is perfect for solar panels. Um, and it's true, you know, you can. But because so much of our global economy, because our economy is so interconnected all over the world, is tied up in oil, and you've got the oil lobby is so powerful, and the natural gas lobby in places like America as well, especially, it's very difficult. It's like moving a glacier. And by the time it does happen, it's going to be too late because... People like these, again, I don't want to sound like a Marxist here because <laughs> that's not why I'm on the show. But if you want to be a Marxist, you be yeah, a I'm Marxist, not, again, bro. I, I'm not, again, I, have to, I have to choose my words carefully because I'm not just talking about my own opinions here. <laughs> but I believe that the state has to take a much more active role in doing something. We can't just leave it up to, you know, private businesses to say, you know, actually, we think it might make us more money if we actually do something about this. So how is, um, what is it, the government recently announced that they're opening a new nuclear power station? Yeah. I, I know it's nuclear, very conflicted. Nu nuclear power is a very divisive topic. It's very divisive. Not just the Greens, but environmentalists generally. Um, I don't see a problem with it, personally. I think it's certainly better than relying on coal and oil and natural gas. But at the same time, I can't ignore the dangers what what dangers are they though? Because we it's, yeah, we I've, definitely I've, move past I've, yeah, I've, like Hiroshima yeah. and you know, Chernobyl. Yeah, I've heard it described that a nuclear power plant is at once uh, the safest and the most dangerous place on Earth. Um, and yeah, even this, even if there's only a ninety nine percent chance that uh, no, even if there's only a one percent chance that things go bad, because the UK and Europe is such a dense population, we're very packed in close together. It would be like a nightmare scenario, but. I don't want to sound like a doomsday either because, you know, if I'm, I, the way I see it, if I'm willing to trust scientists and scientific consensus when it comes to climate change, mm. I'm willing to trust it when it comes to nuclear power plants. And if they say, you know, this is the best hope we've got, then I am not one to disagree with them. Mm. Um, but yeah, as for the official Green Party policy of nuclear power plants, that's a bit tricky. Um, <laughs> a, is, there, is there a stance? Is there? I'm not aware of one. I haven't learned that deeply. If I'm honest, um, because I heard, um, what is it in Switzerland at least? There, I think it's almost ninety percent renewable energy power in there. Yeah, the and that's grid. the thing because it's the same with places like Scandinavia. You know, there was an argument that they've got a lot of natural gas they can just sell off as well. Um, but with, with Switzerland is a landlocked country and they've got so much renewable energy. Um, so again, it, it can be done, 
but it's just overcoming these vested and powerful capitalist interests, which makes me sound like Lenin, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> but it, 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 it is true. Um, there's so much, there are so many barriers in the way to the sort of, you know, this, this progress that we do really need. It's very frustrating sometimes to look at it and be, you know, and that's what mo motivates a lot of the XR people because they feel like the democratic way of, you know, enacting social change has failed them. So they have to resort to, you know, you know, civil unrest action. It does sound kind of scary when you put it like that, right? Yeah. Again, but you don't want to go to either way. You want to tell people that it's bad, but mm -hmm. not so much that they feel there's nothing they can do. Because if you tell, if you just sort of overload them with negativity, they just sort of tend to shut down, trying to think about it like a survival instinct, because, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. What's the point? And that's no hope. And, and again, that's not wrong because one of the great lies put forward by the you know the climate change denial lobby, you know, the business interest, is the idea of an individual carbon footprint that me and you both have. You know, that everyone has a theory, that the idea that somehow um, each of us as individuals has the power to change, you know, to save the climate if we just alter our daily habits. And that's not true. <laughs> Why is that not true? Really I mean, we, could, we can all have an impact. We could, yeah, but that won't be anywhere near enough unless the major businesses and the major polluters actually start changing things up. You know, it's it's like a drop in the water. It will have an effect, but it will be nothing unless the, you know, the major polluters actually do something. Like one CEO produces, you know, millions of times more, you know, pollution than we could ever do with our paper straws, for example. So, you know, even though you know, I'm not saying like don't do that because... They have benefits other than just saving the planet, you know, a lot of renewable energy. Um, but it's still frustrating. And one thing I'd like to hear your opinion on is that say that, um, you know, that the, we're actually wrong about the climate crisis and we can keep going. You know, it's not going to be as bad as we think. We can we can keep going as we are. We can maintain our standard of living. Um, if we change it anyway, all we've done is that we've, you know, improved a lot of the poor people and we've also brought in renewable energy, which we're going to have to do anyway at some point because there's only a limited amount of fossil fuels left. And if we're wrong, you know, we've also said the planet. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. Yeah, but if we change, yeah, changing up our entire economy, it's a sort of an inverted Pascal's wager because if we're wrong about climate change and change the economy anyway to a more green focused one, we've just made things better. And if we're right about climate change, we made things better and we've said the planet. <laughs> you see where I'm coming from? I can understand. I think I think most people across the then they can in the West at least because there's an understanding of okay, climate change is happening and this is it is a, it is a, it is a yeah. thought. I think the one of the biggest barriers is just it's expensive. Yes. It's too expensive. Like buying a Tesla is like 50 grand. <sighs> Don't get me into Teslas and Elon Musk. I mean, te Elon no, Musk. Electric cars aren't as good as you think they are. That's I what mean, I'm they say. have a lot of environmental, oh, what is it? When you're getting cobalt from the ground, you're extracting it, and it's a whole sorts of environmental concerns. Yeah. But it isn't the idea that we're moving away from petrol over to a kind of well, and if the whole electric electricity grid is on renewable energy, mm. there's nothing yeah. wrong, right? Uh, yeah, that's yeah. Again, that is true. Um, I, for one, would like to see a much more emphasis on public transport. Um, compared so moving to, away from cars. I did. Yes, I feel. Again, this is me personally speaking, but I feel like cars should be like the fourth mode of transport um, behind public transport, walking, or car sharing. Um, I was, I, again, I'm, I'm, you, just, didn't, you didn't mention you didn't mention planes. Planes. Again, what was back to what I was saying earlier about our individual carbon footprint. If millionaires are taking three-minute flights, pumping you know thousands of tons of CO two into the atmosphere, what could, that's more than anything we could do in an entire year, you know, or, or a decade of our lives. Um, and again, planes they would be fine if we use them better and more smartly, and ideally with better fuel. Um, but they are 
yeah, planes are important. That's like the most obvious thing to say. <laughs> um, again, I think to a certain extent, we have to agree that our standard of living that we've been maintaining since the end of the Cold War, that is no longer sustainable. And part of that change may involve giving up so many flights across the Atlantic. Which is a, I yeah, can't which, see myself is, giving that. Yeah, which is like I live, a, yeah. my, my family live on the other side of the world. Yeah, again, so. it's a, it's a, it's a grim idea, um, but it's one we might have to get more and more used to as the world keeps on turning and things keep on getting worse. Mm-hmm. Um, not aside from the expense, which I do want to talk about a bit more because I'm you know, I'm aware I haven't actually given you a proper answer for that yet. Um, it's also it never seems to be climate change. It never seems to be urgent enough to shift away whatever is the current news story or the current crisis. You know, you, you've got the Black Lives Matter movement, you've got the war in Ukraine, um, you know, you've got the cost of living crisis here. And even though if climate change is connected to all of these, it's never urgent enough to these spaces as the main object of political activity at any one time, which makes it very difficult to counter. And the same goes to the United States, where it's just like constant crisis after crisis, <laughs> and it's becoming exhausting. Um, there was, yeah, there, there was a very good... Al Jazeera article I read a few months ago about how exhausting it is just to constantly follow American politics because it just keeps on like driving off a cliff every 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 couple of weeks. It just seems to be always another cliff to go exactly, off. Exactly. Yeah. And even and again, like, but ironically enough, they've actually come the closest to doing what they need. Like with the Green New Deal, that's something like that's like a piece of policy. And you know, I can actually get behind. Well, it's the got one, some tea to it. The one proposed by Alexandra Ocasio Cortez. Yeah. Wasn't that 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 policy was like fourteen pages long or something? It wasn't yeah. very detailed. I know. Again, it was more. Again, it wasn't meant to be an incredibly in-depth. Or was proposal. it just like the principle? It's a manifesto. Okay, that it's meant to be a manifesto, not like the book I showed you, which is actually like more detailed. Um, but it was meant to be. It was meant to be telling people like this is the broad strokes of what we want to do and how we're going to do it. It was not meant to be like an incredibly detailed brief to be distributed to bureaucrats across the country to implement. Um, and again, I think it was probably the right idea because it was never going to get passed in that Congress, <laughs> not by a long shot. So that was probably from a PR move. That was it was absolutely the right choice, condensing it down to like a double a dozen page, pages. Um, and it's again, but even though they come the closest, it probably isn't going to get passed since Bernie Sanders somehow becomes president at the age of eighty-two <laughs> next year. Oh um, God! But yeah, and again, you know, the midterms have come in. You know, it's effectively fifty-fifty in America. And you can't make any sort of major policy changes with that sort of divisiveness. There's no mandate on either side to do anything, you know, productive. So, it's already, it's such a polarised country in the first yeah, place. And he, yeah, and he, here in the UK, the Conservatives have a comfortable majority. You know, the next election is a long way away, which will give Sunak the time to bridge the gap between him and Starmer in the popularity ratings. So we could see a Conservative government unbroken into the 2020s, I mean, into the 2030s rather. Into the 2030s. Yeah, I know it's it's grim. It's grim, and you never know. I'm I do not like to make political forecasts, but the Conservatives are very comfortable. Their only their only thing that might like jeopardise them is their whole night of the long knives thing that came, seems to come up every like two years. But <laughs> once they get over their own internal bloodlust, um, they're they're pretty good at United Front better than the Labour. And I, I quite like Sunak. I can't like. I, I feel like he's a very competent man. He knows what he's doing in comparison to Liz Truss. Yeah, Sunak is an interesting man. Um, he's the first non-Christian, uh, non yeah, yeah. Um, prime minister we've had, which is nice. Um, it's good to see. And if someone told you ten years ago that you know, the you know a lot of the Conservative cabinet, a lot of the um, more recent prime ministers have been women or they've been non-white, you say that's that's good. That's a win unto itself. And I agree with that. But when you look beyond that, things get a bit trickier because you're right. Sunak is a 
the governing of the country, Sunak is absolutely a better choice than Truss. Um, like, lettuce would have been better than Anyone would have been better than Truss. Like, <laughs> Truss was... Uh, yeah, she, she is just a disaster. Um, I did have... When I had the Conservative Party president, I did, I did question on that. I was like... Trust has not had a very good few weeks, has she? No, oh, was Queen's that, was died, that, did and you, then did you interview them before she let she quit? Oh yeah, before she quit. Yeah. Oh god, what did what what are the, uh, is this too far off topic? Was it when I was, no, I was, no, I'm no, interested. What did, what did he say about her? He was like, "Oh, give her time. She'll she'll turn it around." <laughs> and I was like, "I mean, first few weeks have been absolute disaster, yeah. haven't they?" Yeah, she lost. Yeah, she lasted less time than Sam Allardyce in the England job. <laughs> uh, I think for comparison, but no, that's enough about Liz Trust. Um, but Sunak is more competent and he's smart enough to know that the climate crisis is a thing and that we need to do something, even if it's just to keep him elected. The people are concerned enough that we need to do something. And hence, you've got the government's net zero policy, um, which, as I said, is good, but it's it's, it's not good enough. Um, but Sunak is he's very ambitious. Um, he's very competent. He's a good people pleaser. Um, I'm very surprised he didn't win the, the leadership election the first time around. So disappointed. I was very disappointed when he didn't win because he he was he was the obvious choice. Yeah, he? again, yeah, obvious. and he's he's like he's portraying himself as a sort of technocrat wizard king yeah. <laughs> almost. Like he's the competent one. He's the guy who comes in and calms everyone. He's a bit like Biden back in when he ran against Trump, like the government guy who comes in to steady the ship after so much chaos and turbulence. And trust like helps him massively out with that because they were like begging for him to come back at that point. He ran uncontested and he won. <laughs> um, uh, but there's again him and Suna, him and Starmer. I think Suna is actually more popular head to head when it comes to leadership than Starmer already. Um, and give him enough time, and if he can get through this winter, um, he he can look forward to a pretty successful career. I think so. It's like most most of, I think yeah. So Truss, Johnson, and May all went down in flames. You have to go back <laughs> to Cameron before. Well, even Cameron had the whole Brexit debacle, but he at least had a semi dignified exit. You have to go back to Cameron for, you know, you know, for some form of, you know, standing down with dignity. Yeah. But Sunak, he's the next generation. He's fresh. He's eager. He's not held back by the old guard either. You know, he's. It doesn't he, seem yeah. to be. Lo- it doesn't. Well, um, um, he doesn't seem to be kind of backed up by interest groups and all that. Well, not that we know of. No. He, he seems to be because he is a billionaire. Yeah. If, we, if, we have, if we have more time, there's so much to talk about Sunak because there's so much depth and layers to him and. Because he puts the Greens in a bit of a, in a, in a, bit of a um, yeah, it's a good final finishing point, actually. Because people like Sunak, they put the Greens in a bit of a picky point, in a sticky point. Because in the short term, he's going to do more than trust on the environment. And he's more competent at running the country generally. Yeah. But on the long term, that means you're less likely to get more members into Parliament when he's still in power. Because the next election, if he's still there and he's done a good job, it would be much easier for the Greens and the Labour to get seats against trust than it would be against Sunak. That is very true. And that's that's the conundrum there. I think, well, as you said, we just need, just need to... My dad kept saying this as well. We need to get through this winter. Yeah, that's it. But again, if we just keep focusing on the short term, we're going to... We just let, just go over the next few months, the next week, etc. But, you know, it's not sustainable. Yeah. Um, do you have any final questions for me? Because I think we're just about out of time. Um, no, I think... No, this just... This would be a controversial comment, but we need to... This is the only way we'll focus. Uh, we should be focusing on the long term, just like China is. That's the only positive outcome of China. <laughs> Democracy is not account for long term planning. You heard it here first. Yes, <laughs> honestly, it's it's you know we've been the West has been too focused on the short term, and this has caused so many of our issues now with energy independence, giving our what is it, uh, gas the Nord Stream one, Nord Stream two. We've connected to Russia. That's and, the whole other kerfuffle. That's Again, fucked there's, us over. There's so much. Uh, there's so much more to talk about. I feel like it's. 
I, I, I respect what you do, but I just don't know if this is the right sort of forum sometimes, you know. Well, for a podcast. No, 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 just to talk about these sort of issues because it's hard to go into the depth you want to on a podcast, if I that mean, makes yeah, sense. It but it's really helpful just to get the word out and get people listening and engaged. That's really good. But I sometimes feel like if only I had more time, you know. <laughs> it's always like that, isn't mm. it? But w- w- what is the ultimate f- uh, the forum then? Last, that's the last Yeah, question. again, I don't know. <laughs> I don't Do know. Have one? <laughs> this, this might be the best one we have. It's not perfect, but it might be the best we have. Like democracy. Democracy. <laughs> 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 this, I think, yeah, on that on that note, I think we'll call it there. Thanks for coming on. No, nah, thank you. It's it was my pleasure. It's been an interesting chat. I hope I was helpful, informative, and I didn't speak too fast. No, no, it was, I think it was a very interesting chat. And um, yeah, so um, subscribe, like, follow us on Spotify. He's a, he's a good man, I know him. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, so we'll call it there. I'll, we'll see you guys in a bit. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Goodbye, everyone.